Welcome to the latest episode of Your Wealth with Gemma Dale, a podcast series designed to help you create, grow and protect your wealth. Hi and welcome to this episode of Your Wealth. I'm Gemma Dale, NAB Trades Director of SMSF and Investor Behaviour. Well, investors have gone really quiet on NAB Trade. I've alluded to this a few times particularly in the second half of this year, but honestly, it's been going on about 12 months now. And it's increasingly clear that a lot of people like you and me aren't 100% confident which way this market is going. But there's always something to get excited about and a way to invest that gives you a much better chance of long-term potential in your portfolio. So today I'm joined by Casey McLean from Fidelity International, who is going to talk to us about some of the opportunities. Uh, We're also going to ask about his shocking predictions. Casey, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks a lot, Gemma. Very happy to be here. So Casey, you were at a session I was also at last week talking about shocking predictions. And I know it's not what we're supposed to be talking about, but it's a great way to introduce everybody Mm. to this. What do you think might shock investors over the next 12 months? At the moment, what we're seeing is a fair amount of reluctance to get involved in the market. Yeah, I think that's that's right, Gemma. Um, and uh, yeah, there is a lot of potential risks that still uh, are lying around in the economy and the market, I think. But the shocking prediction that, that you alluded to that I was talking about last week was actually that... Uh, that we should prepare for a crash landing in the international travel boom. Because I don't know if you're like me, but almost everyone I know is is in Europe or Bali, you know, enjoying their time in the sun. But uh, to me, you know, the sun is setting and there's a lot of indicators there that are sort of rolling over, particularly if we look at the US, which is probably a leading indicator for Australia, given they reopened earlier from COVID, didn't suffer the same lockdowns. And you can see airline sales are starting to roll over. Expedia, Airbnb are talking about declining bookings. But my favourite indicator is that the wait times at Disneyland are now down from about 37 minutes, I think it was, pre-pandemic down to about 24 minutes now. And you see similar trends at Europa Park, which is the second most popular theme park in Europe after Disneyland Paris. It's again, you know, below pre-COVID levels there as well. Uh, And Australia hasn't really suffered that yet. You you can see that new loans for travel and holidays are actually still well above the pre-COVID level and with higher interest rates. Don't know how long that's sustainable for. And at the same time, international airfares in Australia are about 50% above the pre-COVID level, still going up this year. Whereas in the US, they've already peaked, you know, they're well down from the 2022 peak and are almost back to the 2019 levels. So I think uh, as, you know, everyone fulfills their revenge travel, satiates that sort of revenge travel, the cost of living pressures start to to hit home. Um, I think that travel boom will will come to an end and and it's probably the asset intensive businesses like the airlines that are going to be most impacted, especially when they have huge capex bills coming, declining airfares as well. Um, That's that's probably uh, one shocking prediction that uh, many people who are enjoying their time in Europe at the moment probably don't see coming. But um, another thing I'm, I'm thinking about actually, and, and I don't, and I think the market has kind of forgotten now, plastered over, and, and and is much less focused on, given that the whole narrative around soft landings at the moment is is reinflation, uh, potentially 24 or, or beyond. And you know the reason I say that is I think clearly inflation has peaked; it's coming down, at least at the headline level. But a lot of that is just the high base effect. So if we think back to last year, the peak in the oil price was actually in June, June, July. It had a spike immediately after. 
the Ukraine invasion in, in March, April, but then settled down and the sort of monthly peak was about $130, wasn't until sort of June. So we're cycling, you know, pretty easy comps there, even though oil's rallied more recently. And so as that sort of high base wanes off and you start to then cycle tougher comps coming through, we could be talking about reflation in uh, 2024. They are both really punchy predictions and I really like them. So thank you for starting with those. Uh, Love the travel data that you're using. That's super interesting. Uh, Just anecdotally, the friends, and we all have friends who are going overseas and doing incredible things. The friends who have bookings coming up are increasingly worried about the Aussie dollar as well. They're like, oh my God, everything's so expensive. I was like, you are paying for it in Aussie dollars and that hurts right now. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, I mean, Australian dollar obviously tied to the back of you know, China prospects and economy looks pretty weak there as well. But when, you know, I'm also thinking about what happens to these these travellers who are generally, you know, the high spending consumers, once they've you know, finished sipping their sangrias in Spain, what are they going to spend on when they get back home? You know, there could be sort of additional pressure on the consumer uh, once they sort of come back. And there was a good statistic, um, the most recent one I saw was was uh, May or June, that um, the amount of outbound travellers from Australia is up about um, 800,000 from this time last year, but the amount of inbound travellers is only up about 300,000. So the net 500,000 people have left Australia. That's you know, it's almost one half percentage points of the population. And these are those high spending consumers. So that's partly, I think, to blame for that sort of the retail weakness that we've seen as well. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. I'm also, that data point you mentioned about people borrowing for travel, mm-hmm. how are they borrowing? Who are they borrowing through? Like who is lending for that kind of thing? That's amazing. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I think it's a the traditional channels, it's um, it's the consumer lending, the the major banks, credit cards, etc. But uh, yeah, that's it's clearly not sustainable when cost of living in in every other facet is is increasing. And uh, I think this is all those people who haven't travelled for for three years during COVID. They're out there. They say we've got to do it now. Willing to leverage up, but you know what happens next year? Are you can do that again. You know, probably not. Yeah, that's really what's so interesting to me about that is there is this really tricky question about what's happening demographically. Rates are hitting sort of middle-aged people, those with a mortgage, super hard. That's obviously a massive issue. Younger people are struggling with rents, but we have older people who are vastly better off than they were previously if they're homeowners. That's obviously critical. If you are a homeowner and you're older, you're suddenly getting a decent return on your cash for the first time in 15 years. You've got money to spend. But if you're borrowing for travel, completely different scenario. I understand the older people with cash travelling, go for your life. Younger people having to borrow for the privilege that's quite disturbing. You can mm. see that coming off really fast. Yeah, you'd think so. No, and I think that's a great point that, that, that you made there. CBA had a really good chart in their results uh, just a month or so ago that show, that broke down those age cohorts and what's happening to their savings. And you're right, it is that sort of 25 to 45 age group who've seen a decline in their savings because of the you know cost pressure from mortgages or even if you're in the younger demographic, the younger part of that, you know, if you're a renter, it's still gone up 20%, less than your mortgage perhaps, but it's a bigger chunk of your disposable income. And the other end of the spectrum, the 65-year-olds and above, their net savings have gone up a lot. Um, so, you know, I, would I put a sort of blanket sell on travel? Probably not, right? 
it, it's it's those older focused, uh, older age group focused parts of the travel spectrum, like cruisers, perhaps that could do really well in that sort of environment. But I think it's it's that younger group who's really got out there and had to borrow that's going to have to see a pullback. Oh, it's such an interesting prediction. And when you mentioned uh, <laughs> when you mentioned cruises, some recent cruise ship that got. Uh, docked because of COVID again. I was like, oh my God, we've heard this story before. Mm. We don't need to do this again. So it, uh, it will depend on whether older people are willing to uh, to take that risk or whether they're like, nope, I've got my time and I want to enjoy it. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. So let's talk about the soft versus hard landing. You've alluded to it already. Do you have a foot in either camp? Are you looking at this going, it doesn't really matter that much. The consequences will be the same. I'm, I, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of in that camp where it doesn't really matter if it's classed as a hard landing, soft landing. And, and yeah, honestly, I don't even know what the real definition of either is. To me, yeah, soft landing is that, you know, growth slows down, there's not a big rise in unemployment, but inflation peaks and starts to come down and normalise, whereas you know, hard landing is probably, we go into a recession, unemployment rises a lot. And yeah, if I had to pick a camp, I, I think I'm in the, the soft landing. I think Australia is probably going to avoid an aggregate recession because we do have some some pretty good drivers of, of growth still coming through, population growth being the top of the list there. You know, Australia's population is growing the fastest out of any advanced economy, so one and a half type percent range, which is, is, is a really good baseline to grow off. Um, but we've also you know, got the resilience of commodity prices. The financial sector is very strong. Maybe their earnings are peaking, but Capital-wise, you know the structure of the system is is very strong, and you know corporate debt levels are are really well contained as well. So, uh, I would be in that in that camp that we can avoid an aggregate recession. Um, I, I think the the risk is we have a, a per capita recession as we've had, you know, in the past when we've escaped that as well. But for me, yeah, I, I still think we're going to see a slowdown in growth. Um, it, it's happening now. I mean, that's what's really important to market. Doesn't really matter whether it's a hard or soft landing or however you classify them. It's that slowdown that's that's that needs to be priced in, and and we are seeing it coming through in particularly in the consumer sector, consumer discretionary sector, which is really at the coalface there. Um, and uh, yeah, even though it had a pretty good results period, it, it's clear that that growth is still slowing and, and hasn't really bottomed out. Uh, and that's really just, I think, because consumer behaviour is, is changing and it, and it has to change in response to the, the cost of living pressures that we've seen. Um, Coles had some really good data points that they, they alluded to in their results that a survey of their own customers, it showed that 90% are changing their behaviour, their consum- consumer behaviour, uh, in response to the, the cost of living pressure. And you've seen, you know, it's even flowing through into the amount of shrinkage or stock loss, you know, retail speak for, for theft, which which is up about 20% uh, for Coles. Uh, but you're also seeing a lot of people trade down, going from, you know, the the, the uh, better category, you know, if you've got good, better, best in, in products, they're going from better in down into good. And then at the same time, you're also seeing a lot of people moving back from dining out at restaurants to, to dining in at home. So you're seeing some of them go from the better to the best category as well. Uh, so there's, you know, there's winners and losers in that whole uh, regime change that we're seeing in consumer behaviour. And I think we're still in the midst of that and still has a fairly long way to go. There's so much in that. I do love that you point out 
an aggregate recession may be avoided. But there's so much going on underneath that. No, you know, we certainly avoided a recession for 27 years or whatever it was, probably mm. 30 years in the end. Had one during COVID, obviously. But there were so many different periods of economic growth and minor contraction during that and different areas of the economy thrived and others contracted and collapsed entirely depending on what you were looking at. So you're a stock picker, right? You get to look through that lovely sort of high-level picture and go what's really going on underneath and where do the opportunities sit? Mm -hmm. Where are you seeing the opportunities at the moment? Yeah, well, I think if you look at the market as a whole, it looks reasonably fairly valued, sort of trading on about 15, 15 and a half times uh, forward PE, historic average is about 14 and a half. And that's probably fairly valued if, if you do avoid that recession that, that we talk about. Um, you know, it's not totally off off the cards, you know, and there is different areas of stress, I think, through the you know, the global environment. Um, and, and it could just be that it's taking longer to materialise than in, in the past, right? Um, you know, the yield curve famously inverted yield curve is, is a great predictor of recessions, but it's not a great predictor of the timing. And, and the, the timing of the various recessions has, has been from anywhere from six months to uh, out to 17 months now, uh, with the average of about 12. And we're at 10 months now. So you can't say it's not going to happen. And if that was the case, maybe the market is looking um, you know, slightly expensive. But I think what we're seeing as well is is there's much more divergence within the market as well at the moment between, you know, the stocks and sectors that have better prospects and others that, you know, perhaps fully valued. And I think particularly at the, the most recent reporting season, we did see a bit of a rotation starting to happen in the market. So if I look at like the defensives, particularly the sort of expensive defensives, uh, even if they met expectations, delivered good results, they were still sold off. Whereas you look at some more cyclical type companies, if they did the same, if they met their expectations, they did well. So what, what we're seeing, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a dichotomy in valuations. Some of those sort of cyclicals now are at trough multiples, 10 times earnings. You know, some of the expensive defensives are 20, 25 times earnings. Uh, and you know, as we progress through the economic cycle, whether we get closer to that recession or not, or whether we get closer to that trough in the in the growth slowdown, these cyclicals start to look more exciting, I think. And I think that's really where the, the opportunity is going to lie in the next you know, one, two years. For so many investors, as I said, they are sitting on the sidelines because they're not confident they can look through clearly enough to where the opportunity sits. And as you say, those headlines look pretty benign. Mm. You feel the economic headlines look pretty benign, the market looks pretty benign, but there's a lot going on underneath that. One element that I find really, really interesting at the moment is we've gone back to comparing equities to cash. That kind of disappeared for about a decade. (laughs) Ultra low rates, who cares about cash? It's not interesting anymore, which is absolutely the right response. It's difficult when you like certainty to say, I have to abandon that because I'm getting no return. And even when inflation is 2% or struggling to stay in the 2% range, I'm going backwards uh, with my purchasing power if I'm keeping my money in cash. So we found a lot of investors just going, I'm going into equities for yield. Right. I'm happy to wear the volatility and I'm going in for yield. That's it. You know, you can see it in self-managed super funds. You can see it in older people who 
were not comfortable with the volatility when cash rates were higher, having to just take that extra risk. And now they're going, okay, well, if I can get 4.5% in the bank or 4% in the bank, is it worth returning to equities? Am I going to get the yield that I'm excited about and some growth or is the volatility going to wipe out any benefit I get on the yield side? Do you see dividends staying strong? I mean, dividends are still looking pretty healthy at this point in time. Do you see them staying that way? Well, yeah, I, I think I do at the at the aggregate level again because if you look, you know, across the market, balance sheet's pretty good shape. Cash flow is is, is pretty good shape as well. But you know, again, there is going to be pockets of of stress um, on dividend levels as well. Again, you know, bring you back to the most recent reporting season. Um, I think commodity sector, the resources sector is one where you are starting to see some dividend cuts, uh, changes to dividends. And, and even if you just narrow it down and focus just on the lithium sector, we had some two you know, pretty divergent results there with, with Pilbara Minerals actually cutting their dividend, market not liking it, obviously, because their capex spending needed to go up. You know, this is fueling their longer term growth. They're investing in their key asset and, and, and backing it for the longer term. But it, it means you know, potential cash flow, even though they've got a huge cash balance could be lower. Whereas IGO, they had a very different result. They hiked their ordinary dividend, paid out a special dividend. It meant you know, the total dividend was almost double what the market was expecting and, and the stock did well there as well because they're at a different stage, I think, of their CapEx journey. They've spent more money up front. Um, so I think you need to be you know, taking a fine-tooth comb to, to dividends and looking at each stock individually. But um, I think the importance of dividends for the Australian market hasn't gone away. Uh, In fact, it's probably more important than ever because if I look at just last year, last financial year, which just ended, the market surprisingly cranked out a a 10% return in price price return. But if you add dividends on top, it went to 15%. um, And that's before franking credits as well. right? So it was a third of the total return. Um, so you do need to focus on that because that's that's a normal sort of range of, of how much return you're going to get from dividends as well. So I, I think that there is no one size fits all, unfortunately, when it comes to dividends. But you can see a lot of attractive opportunities now, I think, where they're trading on sort of high single digit PEs that look sustainable. The stock itself is often cheap as well. Um, and, and a lot of them, again, are in that sort of cyclical um, category that I talked about. And, and I think buybacks are an important point for dividend investors as well. And I know some you know, sort of dividend investors don't like buybacks, they prefer dividends. But if you think about it from a longer term point of view, it's the buybacks that are fueling dividend growth. Yeah, if you have a you know, simple example, you know, a company that has $100 in dividends that they can distribute, you know, 100 shares on issue, dollar per per share in dividends, right? But if they were to buy back 10% of those shares, still able to sustain the $100 that they're paying out, but on 90 shares now, you're getting $1.11, right? So that future growth in dividends is going to be fueled by buybacks if you don't sell into that buyback, obviously. So I think it's it's really important capital management tool um, for dividend investors, and they should be looking for companies that, that do have that ability to reduce the number of shares on issue, uh, which I think is a key... One of the key criteria I look at when, when thinking about companies that I want to buy or, or, or more importantly, companies I don't want to buy because it's those serial issuers of equity that dilute the earnings and, and the dividends as well. It'd be a lot of our investors paying very close attention to what you just said. It's, uh, the banks are always 
top 10 favourites always and they, interestingly enough, we see quite a rotation through them. Uh, people really struggle to buy CBA <laughs> at $100. They've done so well. Why would you buy it? You've already done so well out of it. So they tend to trim it quite hard and yet it continues to perform so strongly. And they ha- we have really seen a rotation, particularly into Westpac, right. which is quite interesting. That uh, mm. That may change after this conversation, which will be very interesting. Are there particular companies or sectors where you're seeing growth in the performance of the company, but also, you know, they're going to be increasing their dividends over time because you can see that continuing? Yeah, there is. There's quite a few. I mean, I think, again, you need to do it, go through the market stock by stock and look at it. But some of the sort of interesting opportunities I can see are the sort of less exciting Areas, the, not not the sexy stocks, but I think of a stock like Ventiar, which might be new to to some of your listeners, given it's only been listed for a couple of years. Uh, but they're they're in maintenance services, right? so they're doing you know the work for the councils and governments and defence and telcos all around around Australia. Uh, it's a growing market as more and more governments outsource more work. I think the the TAM is growing about six or seven percent. They're gaining a bit of market share on top of that. And you know, have a bit of margin expansion as well. It is a bit of a scale game, and they have the best sort of risk management, project management um, team, and and um, and performance in the sector as well. So you're looking at high single digit, maybe even low double digit in the odd year sort of earnings growth. And this is a company that's that's trading on about a seven percent dividend yield now as well. So I think that's that's something you know you need to think about. Wouldn't you go? Okay, should I invest in cash? How long is this interest rate going to maintain at this level um, versus investing in a company that might be trading at the same or even higher dividend yield but can, can grow that yield as well? So your yield on, on the cost of investment in a few years' time will look you know, very attractive as well. So, that, yeah, that's just one example, but I see other examples like Ventura out there at the moment. It's a really interesting point. When we do see cash at the levels we're seeing now and growing it's usually indicative people are waiting for an opportunity. It's not always that uh, that cash is more attractive. Obviously, the last few years have changed the dynamic a great deal. Are there companies where you're worried about the dividend side? You mentioned two of the banks, which will be, as I said, uh, something I think people will be paying close attention to. Other areas where you think at some point that's not sustainable? Well, I think, yeah, probably called out the two most relevant ones, the banks and, and some of the commodity companies as well, because... With commodities, I think in general, there has been a long period of underinvestment in CapEx, just generally, and CapEx requirements are now going up, not only for just general inflationary reasons, you know, shortage of labour, it's it's still pretty hard to find good labour in WA in particular, uh, but also the, the need to spend on decarbonisation. That's a new uh, a new um, demand on their cash flow as well. Um, so it is reducing their ability to pay dividends, especially, you know, even you see that even within the, the majors as well. Um, so that's one area I think that, that could, um, you know, see dividends. I wouldn't be relying on the, the commodity producers for dividend growth. You know, it's a cyclical dividend and uh, oftentimes when it's trading on very high yield is, is perhaps an indication that the cycle is, is starting to roll over as well. That's such an interesting one. When I first started in markets a very long time ago, it was received wisdom. You would never get a dividend from your resources. It was called resources back then. We didn't call it commodities. Uh, That sector of your portfolio, that was 
just for cyclical exposure and you'd get these wonderful periods of growth and they'd be dead flat for 20 years. Uh, yeah, but you certainly never went there for dividend. And then we had all these specials from Rio and BHP and these just incredible incredible income payments for people in a period where they didn't anticipate it. So if you're relatively new to markets and you look at the historical yield for BHP or Rio or something, that's unusual. Can we say that? It is. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Um, I I wouldn't, relying on sort of trailing dividends to forecast future dividends in a cyclical sector like commodities is is fraught with danger. I think, you know, in in banks, perhaps it's it's a bit more sound doing it that way because they have a very long history of sustaining and growing their dividends um, over time. Yeah, there's periods of stress where they've had to cut dividends. But in general, over the very long term, they've, they've grown their dividends. So you need to think about what type of company you're buying and why you're buying it and um yeah dividend is not the not always the best reason to buy commodity stocks <laughs> no yeah. generally not no. Every, now, every now and then you get really lucky and it's nice but uh, but not always so tell us what you're excited about right now like it's an interesting time we've talked about soft landing potentially things getting tougher in some sectors rather than others is there any way you're just going do you know what this looks amazing right now it's a real it's a real opportunity to get in. Yeah, I think one area that is looking very attractive, increasingly so by the days, is in the small cap segment of the market. Uh, so small caps have underperformed the large caps by about 20% over the last two years, which our technical analyst tells me is, is the uh, biggest period of underperformance on record. And you know, it's not a great surprise that they've done that, given the small caps in general are very leveraged to the macro, to the economic cycle. But, you know, if we are in that, that late stage of the cycle where we're getting close to that, that trough in, in growth or, or even a recession, if it happens, that's the time to get sort of excited about small caps. And within that, I think it's a, it is the cyclical sectors that um, are starting to look attractive. Things like, you know, the mining services, um, building materials as well, more the Australian-focused one, the US-focused uh, building materials have done well, uh, had a very short cycle there. Uh, but, but we're starting to see some uh, evidence that there is turning points coming in some of those uh, segments as well. For instance, you know, housing approvals, they're still very weak uh, and, and probably haven't troughed, but you're seeing housing listings go up and you know, housing prices start to turn as well. That's a pretty good leading indicator of that. And in the mining services, we're seeing drilling activity being very weak, particularly in Australia and, and Canada, a few other jurisdictions. But the amount of equity raisings by junior mining companies has been quite high recently, and that's often a leading indicator that that activity is going to pick up in that sector as well. So, um, yeah, I think there there will be increasingly more opportunities there. And actually, coming out of reporting season, that's that's my biggest list of stocks to to do further work on. I think there'll be some great opportunities to come. That's really cool. Everyone has the most fun in small caps. It's where the interesting stuff is. <laughs> it's mm. a large caps get a bit boring after a while. It's uh, particularly in Australia. But one one question I did want to ask you: Given just extraordinary amounts of liquidity and basically free cash for anybody in that zero interest rate period, but also leading up to that, right? Rates were so low for so long, and individuals had access to cash to do things they might not otherwise have done, but companies had access to cash to do things they might not otherwise have done. Mm. Have we seen a real clearing out? Is that what's creating some of the opportunity, seeing some of these better quality businesses sort of float to the surface in that environment? 
Yeah, I, I think that's definitely true. Um, I mean, and it's definitely part of, of my process as well because when, when I'm thinking about, you know, which companies to invest in, actually the first thing I do is think about what companies you don't want to own <laughs> before you, you think about the ones that you do want to own. Right? And so uh, trying to weed out the lowest quality companies in the market. Um, but I am seeing, you know, it's, it's not a static picture. It changes all the time, depending on how leveraged a company may be um, and the like. But, yeah, definitely seeing more opportunities in the lower end where, you know, quality is starting to, to improve and, um, you know, the fundamentals all all starting to you know, look like they're close to trough levels. So it's, it's an exciting period of time to be in. And, you know, the cost of capital, the free money that everyone had, you know, meant there was you know, a much lower cost of capital. That's now reset, I think. And that's why you've seen small caps underperform to some extent as well, right? that they're now reflecting a real cost of capital. Um, so effect- effectively that, that risk is now priced in or close to priced in and, and you know, a reset is always healthy in, in those sort of stocks and, and provides opportunities. It, yeah, it feels like we... We kind of needed a little bit of that. You saw it on the NASDAQ last year. Mm. It's uh, interesting to see it here too in a different kind of environment, different set of stocks entirely. One last question, and obviously you answered this a little bit at the beginning, but just to cover it off in case there's anything else, any areas where you think investors need to be a little bit cautious right now? Yeah, I think um, it is those expensive defensives where I am and treading fairly cautiously because you can see that rotation in the market starting to happen. And um, if you think about you know, some stocks like the supermarkets or the telcos now, they've, they've re-rated quite a lot um, over the last two years or so, trading you know, close to their, their peak multiples. Um, and a lot of that, I think, has been driven by the inflationary regime, right? That, you know, high inflation feeds their top line. Cost of fruit and vegetables going up is, is generally good for the supermarkets. In mobile as well, the telcos have now tried to implement a CPI-linked pricing regime, which seems to be sticking as well. But it, so as inflation starts to cool, you know, their top line growth could potentially start to slow down as well. And they're seeing cost pressure still come through, right? That, you know, labour costs are, are rising with the new minimum awards and uh, the like still flowing through. Um, and that, that stock loss, the shrinkage is, is going to be a, a consistent theme, I think, given it's driven by cost of living pressures. So I think there's risk that you know, earnings potentially slow down, but also the multiple contracts in some of these expensive defensives as well. Um, and that's yeah, an area of, of funding, I think, that the market's looking at to invest in these more cyclical companies where perhaps you know, the risk reward is better because they're now at, at you know, trough models, very different sort of regime to some of the expensive defensives. Yeah, it's boring as well. Don't want to pay mm. with those ones. <laughs> I shouldn't say that. Casey, thank you so much. You've talked so frankly about a lot of different things and lots for people to think about. Where do people go to find out more about the fund you manage, what you're working on, all that kind of stuff? Yeah, if you look at the Fidelity International Australia website uh, and the fund I manage is the Fidelity Australian Opportunities Fund, yeah, I'd encourage you to, to look at our website. We also have a uh, our own podcast called Soundbites, which you, know, you can find on all the uh, podcast providers as well. And uh, yeah, please feel free to reach out to anyone in the Fidelity team for more information. Casey McLean from Fidelity International, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks very much, Gemma. 
Thank you so much for listening. Also, we love hearing from you. We get fantastic feedback. Love getting your questions and topics you want to hear more about. So please just email us at yourwealth at nab.com.au. And I look forward to talking to you again soon. I'm Gemma Dale. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Your Wealth with Gemma Dale. To stay up to date, please subscribe to this podcast series or email us at yourwealth at nab.com.au. Please note that any advice provided in this podcast has been prepared without taking into account your objectives, financial circumstances or needs. Before acting, you should consider the appropriateness of the information. To find out more, please visit nab.com.au.